Hello, beautiful people. Before we get into the guest today, I want to thank you. You know, I started this project somewhere around nine months ago in September of 2020, and it has since become a top 1% podcast in the entire world. And that's slightly crazy and absurd. So I just wanted to take a moment to thank you for listening, for caring, and I truly appreciate it from the bottom of my heart. It means the world to me. Now, the guest today is one that I had thought about interviewing for a long time, and that is Tom Bilyeu. Tom is the creator or one of the co-founders of Quest Nutrition, you know, those Quest bars you see everywhere. He is part of the reason why they became one of the fastest growing companies in the world, eventually transitioned away from building Quest Bars and selling them. And instead, he now works and does and created Impact Theory, which the goal is to ignite human potential. And he has a bunch of different interviews and he wants to basically become the next Disney, but do it in the style of helping people pursue the highest versions of themselves. This conversation was great. I mean, we talked about a bunch of different things ranging from Tom's childhood to why Tom announces every single time he gets the chills to what he thinks about NFTs to what he would do if he was the president or dictator of the United States. I mean, this was a wide-ranging conversation. I'm certainly better off after having it I think you'll really enjoy it. And if you do, let me know on Twitter at HeyDannyMiranda. But until then, let's get right into the episode with Tom Bilyeu. Interesting people, thought-provoking conversations, nutrition for your brain. Journey through the minds of the world's top performers and discover what it really takes to achieve your highest version. This is the Danny Miranda Podcast. Tom, Bill, you, thank you for coming on this podcast. You have no idea how much this means to me. I'm so grateful for you coming on and agreeing to do this. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thanks for having me, dude. I'm excited to be here. So I'd love to start with you at five years old. And, okay. and there was one story that really hit me when you pretended not to see an Easter egg wow, at, yes. at when you were on an Easter egg hunt. So tell that story and why that stuck with you so clearly throughout these years. Yeah. So I wish we were blank slates. We are not. Uh, there's about 50% of us. So science will have you believe that is hardwired. And so each of us does have like a neutral that we slide into. And part of my neutral is loving to see other people win. That doesn't mean I don't like to win too. Don't get me wrong. Um, but I do enjoy seeing other people win. And one of my earliest memories is that my sister winning is like really important to her and she's older than me by almost four years. So if I was five, she would have been almost nine. And in that Easter egg hunt, I remember thinking, oh, I see one, but if I let her get it, then she'll win. And I know how happy that will make her. 
And so I just, you know, walked away and didn't pick it up and she found it. And of course one, um, and you know, at the time it's, you're not thinking there's no strategy. There's just like, I love my sister and like, Oh, this will make her so happy. And that makes me happy. And so, you know, I didn't really think beyond that, but it obviously, the things that you remember are the things that like really have a big emotional reaction. So I obviously had a very large emotional reaction to my sister winning, tying it to, you know, pretending not to see the egg. And so I've carried that with me for a long time, but it wasn't until much later in my life that I was like, whoa, okay. So this really is like a sign of, cause I would be telling my team, like, no, I really want you to win. Like I, I want to win as a team and I want this to be a group thing. And so, you know, a couple strategies that I use because of how it makes me feel, I don't refer to my employees as employees. I call them teammates because that's how I want to feel. Like as much as that is a gift also to them to not sort of remind them of the power dynamic, but it's also for me because I don't want to be distanced from them. I want to, cause I don't have kids. Right. So for me, it's like the, the team, especially given how much I work, there's a huge emotional investment in my team. And so in explaining to them, like, no, I really, I'm wired for it. I like to see other people win. I like to succeed as a team made me think back to that egg moment. And I thought, wow, yeah, this is one of those. I've always carried this with me. I love how you treat other people, how you would like to be treated yourself. Has that ever gotten you into trouble because you haven't had the same expectation or other people haven't had the same expectations as you would have in a situation? I won't say it's gotten me in trouble, but you, you do have to develop a deep awareness that giving the gift you would like to receive is not always going to be effective, right? So I'll judge effective as if you have a goal, if whatever you do moves you towards that goal, it's effective. If whatever you do moves you away from that goal, it's not effective. And so you will find, unfortunately, many times in your life where you have a good intention, you want to feel connected or you want to celebrate that person, but you do for them what you wish somebody would do for you. And it's not meaningful to them at all. Now in a marriage, let me tell you that that will rear its ugly head frequently. And the, my favorite example actually happened to my sister-in-law and her fiance, who's actually was, they ended up splitting up, but such a good dude. I still, to this day, think he's a great human being. And for her birthday, I think he gave her Armageddon, the movie on DVD. Now, not only does she not care about Armageddon, she doesn't even like sci-fi and it's one of his favorite movies. So of course he has this big emotional reaction to like, oh my God, this thing makes me feel some kind of way. Here it is. I'm giving it to you. It's going to make you feel some kind of way. Right. And not at all the reaction that he was hoping for. And it became this big family joke. And, you know, everybody was like, God, do you not even know her? So when you understand his intention, you get how it actually wasn't thoughtless. He wanted her to feel the way that he feels when he sees it, but she doesn't. And so now when your goal is to make her feel good and seen and understood and loved, and she feels misunderstood, totally not seen, then, okay, this did not work. And most people live their lives in that because they never stop to think that this is another person who has a whole set of their own emotional reactions. And I need to view the world through their lens in order to have a cohesive relationship. Oh man, that reminds me of, of the tea, the tea incident. Yeah. So what happened there? Yeah. So, I mean, this was a gnarly fight. So arguably the worst fight that my wife and I have ever gotten into in 
almost 21 years together now was over a cup of tea. And we were, so this was the very beginning of my entrepreneurial journey. So not only was I obsessed in the way that I'm obsessed now with, you know, building and becoming successful, but I was scared. So I didn't have success. We were broke. And I had promised her father that I was going to make his daughter rich. And he didn't want me to marry her. And he just didn't see how I was going to be able to take care of her. And, you know, so it's this whole thing. So, and at the time, my wife is literally clipping coupons. So I actually did make her poor. So I'm promising her and everybody else, no, 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 I'm going to make her rich. And I make her poor. And you know, believe like this is temporary and, you know, we're going to get beyond this, but behind all of that is, is like real fear, right? Cause now it's easy to see that I end up being right. That was not easy to see then. So then my reality was working, you know, a hundred hour weeks, week in and week out. And always wondering like, is this actually going to work? Am I smart enough to pull this off? Cause I didn't really have a, I didn't have a full blown growth mindset yet. So anyway, that's the setup for we're about to go on vacation. It's the first vacation that I've agreed to take vacation. We were going to be gone one night. And I couldn't comfortably afford the hotel room. I couldn't comfortably afford the gas. And I was really panicked that if I took time off work, that I was never going to be successful. And so all of this is playing in my head. So the only way that I could make it make sense was, hey, the second we wake up, we need to get in a car and go so that we can be there the second they'll let us check into our room so that we get the most out of our money. And so I'm like, all right, you ready? Like, this is a whole stressful thing for me. Like, you ready? We got to go. We got to get going. And my wife is like, I want to have my cup of tea. And I just redlined. And I I wasn't cognizant of why I was redlining. It really seemed absurd to me that given the severity of the situation. Like we have to be there right when it opens. I'm taking time off. I never do this. Like, come on, you got to take this seriously. And the fact that she was being so disrespectful to just sit and chill and drink this cup of tea. Now keep in mind, I never articulated any of this. The sum total of the exchange for her is I'm desperate to have my husband back for one night to connect, to bond, to be a husband and wife, to have a relaxing moment. You know, I've given up by that point. She'd probably I'd probably been working nonstop without taking a vacation for three years. So it it was like hardcore. And so for her, the thought of like, you know, let's relax, let's enjoy each other. Let's connect, no business, no stress. And, but she wasn't articulating that. So all we're saying is, yo, motherfucker, get in the car. We got to go. And Hey, I want to drink my tea. And the more I was like, Hey, come on. The more she was like, what? Like, I want to have my cup of tea. So now we're like starting to fight. And so eventually it's like, fine, I don't even want my tea. And I'm like, yeah, whatever. Like, I don't even want to go on this vacation. And so we get in the car, we're driving down the freeway. We are fighting so intensely. I like an hour and a half into this drive to our destination, turn around, exit the freeway, get back on, head back the other direction. And in my voice, in my head is a voice screaming at me. You know, this is stupid, right? Like you are about to waste the one day in whatever, three, four, five years, however many years it had been since we'd taken a vacation, you're about to waste the one day arguing over a cup of tea, really? And then I was like, this isn't about tea. There's no way. There's either I'm a crazy person or this isn't actually about tea. So what is this about? And I finally said that out loud. I said, this isn't about tea. What are we actually arguing about? 
And so then I got into what now I recognize immediately whenever my emotions flare, somewhere in here, my insecurity has been touched. And now I just have to figure out what am I insecure about, right? And so I was insecure that I'm going to let her down, that I'm never going to become successful, that I'm going to prove her father right, that he should have been right to not want me to marry his daughter. And that I'm maybe I'm not good enough. And, and maybe I have to work as many hours as I have to work. So I'm just never going to be smart enough to pull this off. And so once I could say all of those things out loud, and then she could articulate, the very thing I need you to do is leave the business behind. And we need to be husband and wife. And this isn't about the money for a hotel. I don't care about that. I don't care. And, you know, gave her a chance to say, I don't care if you ever succeed. I want to be married to you as a person. But if you can't enjoy your life, then what's left for us? And so it was like, I have the chills now. I mean, this is like whatever, 19 years later, uh, realizing joy is all that matters. And I will be the first to admit that that's a lot easier to say now that I've been successful, but it really is true. And money won't change how you feel about yourself. Accolades won't change how you feel about yourself. All the followers online won't change how you feel about yourself. And ultimately, that's the only thing that will fuck with you. So billionaires commit suicide because they they can't find joy in who they are. They can't believe in a better future because they thought money was going to change how they felt about themselves. And because it doesn't, then you really feel hopeless because you're like, I have the thing everybody on planet Earth would actually fight for and some would kill for, and I have it, and it didn't help, right? So- Um, so all of that just really started to crystallize in that moment when I realized, oh my God, like the game that I'm playing is a game of neurochemistry. And if I don't understand what's motivating my neurochemistry, then I have an argument, a screaming match about a cup of tea instead of being able to go, Ooh, I actually understand what's going on here. And if I have the courage to verbalize it, then we can actually get on the other side. We end up going and having an amazing vacation and we now, to this day, you know, 20 years in, still say we're arguing about the T. Boom, that's the trigger. And we're like, okay, cool. What's that layer deeper? You know, you said in the middle of that, I just got the chills. And I noticed this nonstop from going through your content. You sometimes tell a story so vividly that you're there in that moment and feel so deeply what you must have felt in that moment. One, why do you get the chills? Two, what is going on in your head to allow you to be in that moment again? Okay, so this is going to be some hard wiring. So I, I am prone to experiencing awe. So it doesn't take a lot for me to be like, whoa, this sunset is unreal. Like, this is crazy. And I feel, you know, sort of that, like, I, I literally have the chills right now just explaining how I feel sometimes about sunsets. So there's that. Uh, and then there is whatever you repeat becomes like a bigger thing, right? So because I externalize when I get the chills, my brain goes, oh, getting the chills like must be a thing, right? So this is what I call the physics of being human. The human brain just works in certain ways. One of the ways it works is to justify the amplitude of your reaction. So we are meaning making machines. So your body feeds you a signal and then your brain goes, okay, cool. What did that mean? So I'm experiencing awe. I have a bodily sensation. I get the chills. And then my brain goes, yo, 
you call this out every time you get the chills, you say something, this must really matter. This must be a thing. So now it like becomes a bigger and bigger thing, which makes me more likely to experience awe, which makes the amplitude of the awe go up because I'm calling it out because my brain is going, Oh shit, this matters. So now it's like, I can give my, myself the chills just by embodying that the way that I am around moments of awe. And so that's what I call physiological hooks. So there are physiological hooks into your life. Feeling sad, laugh out loud. Now it's not a cure-all and it probably has more to do with your diet than anything else, which is a whole nother thing we could talk about later. But like laughing will have some kind of influence on your neurochemistry. And recognizing like diaphragm breathing will lower your anxiety, whether you want it to or not. You could think stressful thoughts all day. If you just sit there and diaphragm breathe and interrupt those stressful thoughts and diaphragm breathe, like you will eventually get calm. And recognizing that for whatever weird reason, evolution has given us these physiological ways to get control of our neurochemistry is, is just a, a huge breakthrough. So anyway, realizing that the more I point out the chills, the more I get chills, the more awe I witness in the world, it becomes a self-reinforcing cycle. So I've just done it now so many times that on top of being prone to that experience of awe, I've just reinforced it, reinforced it, reinforced it, reinforced it. It reminds me of when Tony Robbins said something like, if you get really angry, just say a ridiculous word. Because if you say that ridiculous word, you're then going to be laughing about that and it'll change your, your mental state. Is that something you've done as well? 100%. Tony talks about what he calls state changes. Mm-hmm. And you have this ability to change the way that you feel. Now, anybody that, that questions that, I will say, go put on your favorite song, the one that makes you feel super hyphy. And like, you'll just see instantly you go from like, cool, I'm having a normal day to I put the headphones on, I hit that song, and I'm just in a different place emotionally. So now you can learn to do that without the music through all kinds of different things. You can amp yourself up, you can calm yourself down. Um, And taking the time to learn those hooks is ridiculously important. I'm I'm curious if you, you talk so much about the importance of repeating things to yourself. And I'm curious if you have specific triggers of things you repeat to yourself often when you're just in a down moment or whatever it is for you. No question. So I wrote down my belief system because so back at Quest, we had 3000 employees, about a thousand of them grew up really, really hard. And quite frankly, the vast majority of humanity just has not done the work to get control of their mind. So they believe their emotions, their emotions then reinforce themselves because they don't do anything to shake themselves out of it. And so they can go into weird spirals. So I wanted to give people the blueprint for how I took myself from feeling scared and hopeless to building a skill set that allowed me to build a billion dollar business, right? So it's like, okay, well, I went from actually wondering if I was going to be smart enough to pull this off to doing it. And what did I do? It wasn't simply going, oh, no, I really was smart enough all along. It was going, oh, this isn't really about intelligence. This is about skill set and actions. And so if I had the right skill set and I was capable of taking the right actions, then I could succeed. So now I'm like, well, shit, how do you tell other people how to do that, right? As the guy that likes to see other people win, I'm like, all right, motherfuckers, here we go. Like, and I just wrote it down. And literally, it's one of the only things I've ever just sat down and wrote in one go and then was like, this is it. And those are the things that I repeat to myself. So human potential is nearly limitless, right? 
I can do anything I set my mind to without limitation. That's a lie, but it's an empowering lie. And I only do that which empowers me, right? So anytime I'm getting stuck, it's like, those are the things that I would repeat to myself to be like, okay, and this is one that actually isn't on the list, but has become more and more important over time as a business person is to, you're looking at a big business opportunity. And it's like, that's impossible. The number of people that will say that and the number of times it will kick up in your own mind. And I finally just started asking myself, does it violate the laws of physics? No, then it is possible. Now it's a question of, are you willing to do it? Maybe not. Maybe it would take 10 years just to get the baseline skill set. And so you're just like, ah, I'm not willing to do that. Or it would cost me $1.5 million just to hire the right team to figure out if this is even feasible. I don't want to do that. Fine. But don't waste time saying it isn't possible because that isn't true. And so you become what you repeat. So you have to be really, really careful about that. And the ones that I wrote down, it's 25 long. I've never taken the time to memorize them, to be honest, Um, but you can find them online. So if you type in Tom Billy belief system or impact theory belief system, it will come right up. Um, And I'm too busy living them to memorize them, if that makes sense. And we'll put them down below. One thing that you looked up and said, this isn't impossible is at 12 years old, your mom wanted you to get a Nintendo and buy it yourself. And so you worked at the door factory for $2.10 an hour. What was that story like? (laughs) So, you know, it's funny. Uh, I actually think that that Nintendo thing is more responsible for my obsessive level of work ethic than just about anything. So for better or worse, man, we are products of our childhood. And I wish that our childhood wasn't as influential as it is. So my parents didn't have a lot of money when I was growing up. Now, I used to think I grew up poor. I have now seen poverty. I did not grow up poor. But I grew up in a way where my parents would not give me the things that I wanted. So I wanted a Nintendo. And my parents said, no. And at first it was just, no, they just didn't want me to have one. And then it became as a way to keep me from getting it. They said, well, you can have it, but you'd have to pay for it yourself. And that fed into my dad's fetish, which is in the Bill U household, we worked. And that was just it. And from the time I was 12 years old, I have had a summer job every single year. And then by the time I was a junior or senior year in high school, I was working all through the school year plus summers. And then I worked two or three jobs through college. So it was just, that's what you did. And so because of my family being blue collar families, the only thing that I had access to were a door factory or a paint factory or whatever. So, you know, you have to imagine at 12 going into a door factory sucks. And I would literally, I remember carrying lacquered door trim. So for people that don't know what lacquer is, that shit is sticky. And they would lacquer the door trim. And then I had to carry it on for people that are just listening. They won't see what I'm doing with my arms, but it would lay across the back of my arms. And I would carry it from one place to the next as it was drying, which means that lacquer was drying in my arm hair. And even at 12, I had just enough that going home, that would suck because you basically have to rip your arm hair out to get the lacquer out of your arm hair. So yeah, that was not fun. Uh, And the Nintendo with tax and a game, I think ended up costing like $140 or something like that. You can run the math on how long it takes to at $2 and 10 cents an hour, get to $140. But let me tell you one, I worked the exact number of days that I had to work to get my Nintendo. And then when I got it, 
dude, the joy and power that I felt walking into that store. And I remember for some reason it fell when my parents were on vacation. So they went away for the weekend and I had my sister had a friend who was a guy that was just old enough to drive. So he took me to pick up, uh, to buy my Nintendo and the game. And dude, I felt like a man. I felt like a man. And there was something about the anger of having asked for a Nintendo from the time I was eight years old and being told no and thinking legitimately every birthday and Christmas, they're a hundred percent going to give it to me this time. Nope, 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 nope. And then having to work in that door factory, yanking my arm hair out and a ton of other shit, by the way, that sucked. And finally buying it for myself, that created an addiction that I was like, oh my God, if you work hard, you can have anything you want. And so my dad, literally, I remember this. So I worked all these blue collar jobs, working in factories of one kind or another, having to get certified to drive a forklift. Like that was my teenage years. Now flash forward 17 years later or whatever, and we're at Quest and a big truck backs up with all this equipment that we just bet the whole company. We took all the savings we had and put it into this equipment. A big fucking semi backs up and they're like, where's your guy's forklift? And we're like, forklift? Why do we need a forklift? The guy's like, how the hell are you going to get the equipment off the truck? And we're like, but we have like one of those docks. You should, can't you just pull up to it? And he's like, A, they don't align height-wise. And B, you want me to just push the shit off? He was like, even if they did, how am I supposed to get this off the truck? It's all on pallets. And so we're like, oh my God. And I looked at my partners and said, I'm I'm a certified forklift driver. If we can find a forklift, I can actually drive this shit off. So we walked over to the neighbors in the business park and said, hey, can we borrow your forklift? The guy's like, yeah, man, go for it. I grabbed the forklift and we shot a video of me looking at the camera. And I said, dad, wax on, wax off. Cause my dad said, dude, one day you'll never know when, but you're going to need these skills. And I was like, so angry. And I'm like, no, I'm not. I am never going to need to drive a forklift. And there I was with, you know, worth God knows how many millions of dollars at that point. And I was the only one that knew how to drive a forklift. I was like, fuck, this is crazy. So work ethic, doing shit you don't want to do. It, it is shocking how it becomes important at some point when you least expect it and most need it. Why did your dad have you drive a forklift? The honest answer is he wanted me to go to college. And so he wanted me to do things he thought I would hate and know that getting an education was worth it. And so he was just like, no, I want you to do a lot of manual labor. So we used to have to, my sister and I used to have to cut and stack wood Every like this is it's so funny to think now how different the world is. So one, I grew up in Tacoma, Washington. So I was right on the edge of rural. So what you could do is you could go and if a tree had fallen, because there are just trees everywhere where I grew up, if a tree had fallen, you could cut it apart with a chainsaw, split it with an axe, and then take it back to your house and use it as firewood. So we didn't have, at least when I was quite young, we didn't have like a heat pump or anything. So if you wanted the house to be warm, you're asked to put wood in a fireplace. And so my sister and I were in charge. My dad would cut the tree apart. And then my sister and I had to split the wood, haul it, take it home, stack it. And if you've ever had pitch all over your hands, that's a good time. Uh, And yeah, so he wanted me to do all this stuff that really sucked so that I would know that I wanted to get an education. And little did he know that I would end up founding a manufacturing company and I'd be back blue collar all day, every day for years. Um, But it was super powerful. It 
it, I can't be broken from a work ethic standpoint because my whole life I've been doing work that I hated to the core of my existence, but had to see it through. And one of the reasons I didn't have kids is I knew I would have to do the same thing to them to toughen them up. And I didn't want to do it because I'm really grateful. I hated it growing up, but I'm so grateful now. My parents love me to death, treated me so well, but made me do a lot of hard shit. And there was no quitting. It just wasn't on the menu. It's so weird that you say that because another part of you said you needed the David Goggins element because you felt like you were going to quit. You wouldn't see things through. You were lazy in some respect, but here you're telling me you're doing a bunch of hard work. What, what am I missing here? Dude, this is like, okay, so there's retelling my story as mythology. And then there's retelling my story in the like super confusing, like, wait, but so like, for instance, if you really want me to fuck you up, I was the laziest human on planet earth. And the only reason I was doing all that work is because my parents were like, if you want to live in this fucking house, you're going to go work in a paint factory. You're going to, if you want the Nintendo, you're going to work in the door factory. And it wasn't, I didn't have an option. Like you were going to go split the wooden carry it. Like my, my parents were very good at just like, it wasn't like they were asking. In fact, my dad would say that I'm not asking you, I'm telling you go cut the wood. Now I don't think my dad ever once spanked me or hit me. My mom did. My mom was a ninja, which is a whole nother thing, which I am so grateful to how hardcore that woman is. Cause she is the reason I stayed on the straight and narrow. But when my dad said, and I'm not asking, you just fucking did it. And so I'm lazy. I hate it. I'm resentful. It's building up this anger in me to never let somebody tell me what I'm going to do ever again in my life, which explains why I'm an entrepreneur and not an employee because I just, I have a, I have a dysfunctional relationship with authority. So that all gets instilled in me and having to do all this stuff I don't want to do. And then, so now I'm super lazy, only doing things because my parents tell me to do them. And I almost don't leave for college because I have this panic moment and I don't want to go do it. My mom is quietly assuming I'm going to fail, but she basically kicks me out of the nest, never tells me I'm going to fail, but she believes it because she, she's looking at me going, this kid is so lazy. My best friend in high school assumes I'm going to fail. His exact quote was, I assumed you were going to marshmallow your way through life. So now you've got this kid, has a real problem with authority, has these crazy big dreams. I'm this kid growing up almost rural, telling everybody I'm going to be rich one day, right? All my family and friends are like, what a joke, right? Nobody where I was from, like really thought that I was going to be rich. They're just like, whatever. And I go to college. And even I'm like, yo, am I going to be able to pull this off? And so through a whole set of events, I got into the right college, but I didn't even apply to the film school. I didn't understand. I didn't look into it. My parents didn't know. Like we were just all wildly ignorant, right? And this is all before the internet. So I realized, holy shit, what do I have to do to get into film school? They say you need a 1300 on your SATs. I got a 990. And I took it twice. That was my combined score. So I'm like, oh my God, like I'm never going to get in. All my dreams are crashing. And I found out that one of the people on the admissions committee would let you join him for lunch. So I was like, yo. So I went to meet this guy. I was the only one, which to this day I cannot fathom is true. And statistically speaking, you're more likely to get into Harvard law than you are USC film school. So I'm like, oh my God. The odds are already stacked against me and I don't have the grades or the SATs. So I go and meet this guy and I say, look, I have terrible SATs. What do I need to do to get into film school? And he says, you need to get good grades. 
He's like, if you get good enough grades, I won't even look at your SATs because SAT just tells me how well you're supposed to do in college. By the time you're eligible to apply, you'll have done two years of college. So I'll know how well you're doing. So I'll just look at your grades. Now, I did very well in high school, got an amazing GPA. Only catch, I cheated the entire time. So now I'm like, I'm in college. Now, why between the end of my high school year and the beginning of my freshman year in college, why did I make myself the promise to myself, not to anybody else? Sink or swim, A or F, I will never cheat again. So now I'm like, fuck, he's just told me I have to get good grades to get into film school. So now to make my dreams come true, I have to get good grades. But before I learned that, I promised myself no matter what, I wouldn't cheat. So now who do I want to be? Is this a do whatever it takes to get into film school? Cheat if you need to. Or is this, all right, we now have an honor code and we're going to live by it. And I decided, hey, it doesn't make sense to cheat to get into film school and then cheat my way through film school because this is what I want to do with the rest of my life. I actually have to get good at this. So there it's like, well, wow, Tom, that was a really powerful realization. And then for literally four years, I don't do anything but work. For two years to get into film school, I study. I lock myself in my dorm room. I don't party. I don't drink. I don't do a single drug. I don't have a sip of alcohol. I don't even go on a single date for four years. I am the most hardcore motherfucker you will ever meet in your life. I get into film school. I become one of only four people selected to do a, to do a senior thesis film. It's fucking crazy. I own that bitch. I was like, God damn, like I'm here to run shit. Then I graduate and I'm like, fuck, what do I do now? I had no idea. I totally screwed up my final film. It was terrible. I got smacked in the face with, I didn't have talent as a filmmaker and I didn't have the word yet, yet. So to me, I'm just like, you don't have talent. So now it is like this dark, hopeless phase where I'm coming home from dead end job after dead end job with my college degree, but still working retail, selling video games. And I would come home and I would lay on the carpet of my unfurnished apartment because I could not afford furniture. And I would just lay there going, what the fuck am I going to do with my life? I have no idea how to break into Hollywood. There's no such thing as YouTube. There's no like video cameras. Like you don't walk around with a video camera in your pocket. Like that wasn't a thing. All video cameras were trash. They were garbage. So I'm like, I honestly have no idea how I'm ever going to succeed in my life. So now the same kid that just was a total ninja at film school is now laying in bed four to five hours a day, every day. I was on unemployment at one point and I would literally just play video games for like 13 or 14 hours a day. Like it was my job. It was crazy. I would just play through the night. I would have to set an alarm. This is a true story. I would have to set an alarm to make a 10 PM movie. What kind of vampire has to set an alarm so that they don't sleep through a 10 PM movie? Because I would stay up until like six, seven in the morning, sleep all day. It's crazy. So now it's like my whole life is like the stutter stop where I'll get like one insight and I'll be really honorable and hardcore during film school. But then like all of that discipline that I showed that I had, like it went out the window. And that's why I tell people follow, follow through is about desire. I wanted film school. I could see it. I knew what that meant. That was going to secure the rest of my life. So I was like, I'm in, I'll do whatever it takes. Once I didn't know what I wanted anymore, because I, I didn't think that I was talented enough to become a filmmaker. So now I'm just scared. Now I'm scared. I don't have a growth mindset yet. So I don't know what to do about the fact that I'm scared. I don't know what to do about the fact that I'm not good enough, right? Because I'm not thinking I'm not good enough yet. I'm just thinking I'm not good enough. 
And so I lay in bed. And so then it takes this whole moment of shame with my wife and or my to-be wife and my to-be father-in-law and all this. And then I realized one really key thing, and then I will shut up because this has been a long monologue here. I realized there's a difference between having ambition and having the drive to see it through. But by then, so in the height of my depression, before I meet my wife, in the laying on the carpet phase, I begin reading about the brain and that changed everything. Dude, I love how you just compacted your whole life into one monologue. <laughs> that was incredible. Was was when you started your film school journey, was that the first time you used that hard work for yourself? Yeah. So in high school, I would cheat and I would rationalize it. And I would say, well, I could do the work, but I, there are other things that are more important to me, like building relationships with people, girls, uh, which I was terrible with girls, by the way, but nonetheless was doing everything that I could to try to, you know, uh, get an in, which I never did. Um, but, you know, having relationships with friends, trying to like do well with girls, like I actually was able to convince myself that that made more sense. And so I was like, you know, when I get to college, like I'll take it more seriously then, then it really matters. And now remember, I have a problem with authority. So the teachers feel like the man, they're trying to hold me down, right? They're like the ones that are trying to fuck me up and what do they know? And so I had a, I was both the funny guy. So I had like a good relationship with a lot of my teachers because I was um, kind and I was fun and funny and so I could get away with a lot by being charming. Uh, but at the same time, I was like, you know, fight the power and like, I'm not going to let anybody hold me down. So I felt like such a sense of like, I should be able to cheat. I should get good grades just, just because like you guys shouldn't like get to determine my worth with your stupid grades. You know, like that was like my attitude. And once it was because the, the excuse I'd always use is I'm never going to use calculus later in life. So I don't care about cheating. It just like, it didn't make sense. If I could go back and slap myself in the mouth, I would, because as a business person, you need every bit of math you can fucking get. But anyway, I did not realize back then. And unfortunately, teachers don't know because they're, they've been teaching their whole life instead of going out and doing something beyond sort of the scope. So they can say, you're going to use it in all these different ways. So anyway, because of all that, um, yeah, when I finally applied myself, it was like, this actually matters now. And so that insight, I'm very, very grateful to, and I don't know where it came from, but with that insight, I made the right moves. I love your story because it's a tale of two people. It's the same person, but you're living two different lives. And that is so incredible because it gives you hope that you can really change. I'm curious, at what point in all this story did your dad give you a plaque that said, find something you would die for and live for it? That wasn't, I mean, I guess now it's been like 12 years or something, but oh, was more um, that was, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was already very successful at that point and um, had, you know, generated a lot of wealth. And it was really an interesting insight from my dad because, you know, as he saw me become an entrepreneur part of his thing was, you know, I never had the courage to do that. And, you know, for him, you know, look, to some extent, we're all a product of our uh, time and our upbringing and 
his parents told him what he told me, which was get an education. And that ended up being very empowering for him. And, you know, he was one of the more successful people in his family. And like part of, you know, I mean, now we're getting into like what really drives my family. Part of, I think, what drew my mom to him because my mom was like blue fucking collar. So like she grew up on a farm, man. Like this was like some OG shit. Her parents were like straight out of the, um, the depression. And so you've got my mom's family, fucking blue collar is a day as long. The number of people in my family that are missing fingers and or teeth is hilarious, which by the way, gives me, you cannot look down on what you love. So like, I love so many people that were just like blue collar, hardworking, like calloused hands, missing fingers. I lost a finger at the wood mill, like that kind of shit. Like the number of people in my family that have that kind of story, um, seeing the sort of opioid, uh, thing early up close was like, damn, uh, a lot of alcoholics in the family. So anyway, seeing all that stuff up close, my dad sort of escaping that my mom looking at that and going, yo, like, here's somebody that I've fallen in love with that has like dreams of being white collar and getting educated. You know, I mean, it was just like, it's a whole thing. Like that's like my lineage is that, that cusp of like, are we white collar? Are we blue collar? You know what I mean? It's like, my dad was trying to pull the family sort of white collar, but every family event you go to is like deeply blue collar. So it gave me this without me even realizing a very fascinating perspective, gave my dad a box that he lived in, which was get an education. That's it. You get an education, you work for a company, you get the gold watch, like you do your 40 years. And he got bit in the ass with that because he ended up being sort of the part of that transitional generation where the boomers couldn't count on retiring with the same company. And so he poured his heart and soul into a company for 12 years um, and then they moved and we're just like, sorry, peace. And, you know, that was, I think, really devastating for him and made him begin to think like, huh, did I make the right bet? And it ends up working out just fine for him. And he's so happy now, but he's somebody that lived for retirement. Right. And he saw me work a totally different angle, which was to make demands that today has to be awesome. And I'm going to live the best life I can live right now. And yeah, so that plaque, I think in some ways was a reflection of him saying, this is how I see your life. And in giving me that plaque made me go, whoa, like this is a crystallized version of what I've been doing without having the words to put to it. So it was a, a very neat moment that, you know, my, my, both my parents are still alive and I'm super grateful to sort of have all these realizations, you know, while we're both still around and can actually talk about it, uh, which is really interesting. So how did that inform your decisions in the future? You said that was 12 years ago. So you're working on Quest at that point. And so did you say to yourself, you look at that plaque and then you say, I'm going to start Impact Theory someday? Or what was the... No, I mean, here's the the good news is that the way that the big lessons in my life has, have always come from some sort of devastating mistake. So we were the same partners that built impact theory, or sorry, that built Quest, uh, were the ones that I had worked with at a technology company called Awareness Technologies. And Awareness Technologies, I showed up every day and said, I'm here to get rich. And that was all we talked about, getting rich, getting rich, getting rich. You know, that was like our driver. And began to realize that this is a, a way of getting myself focused and hyped up that actually doesn't feed my soul. It's taking more energy than it's giving me. 
And so the software company wasn't interesting. The product we were selling wasn't interesting. And my motivation for doing it wasn't interesting. And so somewhere around the eight, eight and a half year mark, uh, my wife comes to me and says, all of this is now damaging our marriage. And you're working so hard. You're working so many hours, which I could handle, but you're really unhappy. And so I can't handle you working that much, not getting to see you a lot. And when I do see you, you're miserable. So something's got to give. And that just got me thinking about, you know, what do I really want? And the punchline was, I want to feel alive. And that, of course, we would now translate to passion, but this is all before the internet. So it's like, there aren't a bunch of people on Instagram saying like, follow your passion, right? So um, in that moment, I realized though, wow, I'm really living the cliche of money can't buy happiness. Like this is crazy. And so in that realization, I realized, okay, whatever I do now in the future has to be something that gives more energy than it takes. It needs to be a passion. It needs to be something where I can add value, where I can be myself, right? We now say authentic. Um, And so all of these things I realized through suffering. And I think part of what makes me useful as um, somebody who puts out content is I'm leaving an instruction manual made by somebody who built something really successfully, but really fucking struggled with the instructions. And so when I write the instructions, I'm like, yo, you're going to trip yourself up here. This is the thing nobody tells you about right here. Your own mind is going to fuck with you. And you've got to get a grip on that, right? You get a grip on that. You use these beliefs. Now we've got something, right? So um, that was all that learning, but not necessarily having been codified. And then the, you know, the last sort of 10 years of my life have been about write that shit down. How do you make it explainable to somebody else? Yeah, I love it, man. Um, You said you wanted to feel alive. And I'm curious if you have gone free diving. Is that still your biggest fear? Because that would definitely make you feel alive. Uh, Well, there's a difference between fearing for your life and having an adrenaline rush and feeling alive. So let's, uh, I have not done free diving, nor do I have any desire to. Uh, That is a funny story. Uh, but no, I have not done it. Um, my thing is what, when you're doing something that you get a, a peak neurochemical experience from, and it is pleasurable and there is a sense of progress. That is really what I mean when I say feeling alive. So for me, that comes from writing stories and building businesses. Those two things give me the same kind of rush of like, I have to get better than I am today in order to accomplish what I want to accomplish. And the very act of working my ass off to get better is fun. And when you do that, dude, life is a fucking rush. Part of the reason I don't have kids is my life is so much fun that I don't want anything that distracts from that. Mm. Yeah. So on that topic of, of being the best writer you can be, you know, I heard once that you wanted to be the best, not, I don't know how to pronounce it. It's a, it's a Naga. Mm, I, I'm going to butcher it badly. I'm not sure where but, you're going. I would help you out here if I could. No, no, no. It's, um, I, yeah, I, I can't remember, but it's the female, it's only female comics, but you can only write in, in from women. Oh, shojo. Shoujo, is that it? Shoujo comics. Yeah. Shoujo is a, a type of comic that is aimed primarily at women. Yes. Yeah. So you once said that you wanted to be the best shoujo. Oh, the word writer. you're looking for is mangaka. 
<laughs> explain yeah. what these mean and and like why that drew you so much oh man Whew. uh i will i will give tiny details and then if they're interested interesting just ask and i'll go deeper but this is where now you're into something i i'm so fascinated by i could waste a lot of your podcast Please. uh okay so a mangaka is is simply the japanese word for comic author so uh now you have there can be uh, a male mangaka is typically going to write for boys. So this is the fascinating thing about the Japanese. They don't try to make one thing for everybody. They make things for boys. They make things for girls. They make things for men. They make things for women. And uh, shonen is what you make for boys. So you could have a mangaka that's making for boys. And I don't think, I don't think that mangaka is conjugated differently for a female writer, but I could be wrong about that because I don't speak a lick of Japanese. Uh, but that's the sort of really quick nutshell. Now, why I am into manga so we i grew up on western comics and now i don't deal in western comics in any way shape or form i don't buy them read them uh produce them nothing there's a reason that manga has eaten the world from a sales perspective it, it's so dominant as to be laughable uh to give you an idea recently one title called demon slayer that one title outsold by itself the entire western comic market so one Japanese book is bigger than the entire U.S. market. I'm talking Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman. They, they are all combined beat by one Japanese title. Uh, and there's a, a very deep and fascinating reason for that, which I will not bore your listeners with. What, what is it? So to keep this spicy for your audience, instead of talking specifically about the Japanese, I'll give you how my thinking changed. Okay, so we're living through a very interesting time right now where people want to believe, and I get it because I want this to be true, just sadly it, it is not. They want humans to be blank slates so that we can all be anything that we want to be and that nobody necessarily will finish anywhere different than anybody else. Um, I hope that people will grant me the following statement. No matter what, LeBron James is always going to have a better basketball career than my wife, who is 5'1". Now, my wife is fucking tenacious. That woman is legit. And let me tell you, I'm, I won't even say that she couldn't make it into the NBA. I don't think it is likely, but I, don't, I won't even take that off the table. But I will say that LeBron is always going to dominate my wife. There are just realities to be faced about his physicality alone. Now, he may also have certain brain wiring that allows him to read the game better than other people. I, I don't pay close enough attention to basketball to know, but I would just tell you that we all have, we're 50% hardwired. So that 50% is going to have a massive impact on our life. Now, personally, I'm only interested in the 50% that's malleable, but there's a reality. So anyway, we're living through a weird time where everybody's trying to say, no, 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 we're all the same. And therefore we could all have the same outcome. And therefore it is a utopia that we should strive for. And the heart of that, I love so much. And if you don't have that energy, like I'm unnerved by you, that you wouldn't want that, that'd be fucking awesome. But the reality is it just doesn't work that way. And okay, cool. So it doesn't work that way. How does it work? Now in the West with comics in particular, we have forced the issue. And so we will say, look, I know guys like sexy characters, but they shouldn't. That's bad. But it's like, well, yeah. evolution begs to fucking differ because evolution is going to make sure that I have kids. And how has evolution ensured that? That I look at an attractive woman who shows me signs of fertility and I want to be with that person sexually. That's just, thems are the realities. And so nature has shaped my brain over millions of years 
to find certain things attractive. So when you show that to a 14-year-old boy, he is more likely to plunk down his hard-earned money to read that comic. Now, you can judge it and say it shouldn't be, but it is. And so my thing is, don't try to change behavior. Try to leverage it. So how do I now make that kid a better person, more empowered, better to men, women, everybody in between by recognizing what his brain is like, what his brain will respond to and giving him that. Like for instance, boys love comics with a lot of fucking fighting. Now, again, you can say that they shouldn't, but they do. So my thing is the Japanese have gone, they just are, are totally uninterested. I'm not even sure what the right word is. Their comics make it clear that they're going to aim things at boys that boys are interested in. So right now, again, judge it all you want. One of the top selling comics right now. So everybody needs a motivation, right? Maybe it's to save the world, to avenge your wife's murder, whatever. Every character needs that motivation. This lead character in one of the most popular Shonen Jump titles right now is a kid whose stated goal, and he states it over and over and over, is to finally one day get to touch a woman's boob. Mm. that's it. Now you can say that's dumb, but I will just remind you it's one of the top selling in one of the most popular genres worldwide. Why? Because every 14 year old boy, every straight 14 year old boy can identify. Now I'm not saying it's good. I'm just saying it is. Now there's a book. I want everybody to read it. Cause right now we just lost half your audience thinks that I'm a, a monster right now. I want them to go read a book called a billion wicked thoughts. Now, when you read A Billion Wicked Thoughts, I don't know where people, I don't know how, people just don't talk about it because I, I can't fathom there's a way to, to explain this one away. But it goes something like this. When sex re- researchers try to ask people about their sexual behaviors, you're combating that people lie. Because even when you tell them, hey, this is anonymous, just it's written feedback, no one's ever gonna know. People are like, man, they might recognize my handwriting. They might film me as I like put it in the box. Like, so they're not gonna tell the truth. And then finally, these Google engineers realized Oh shit, we just spent the last 10 years running the largest truly anonymous sex research ever, which is what porn words do people type into Google? By sex. And dude, it will blow your hair back when you realize like women, the type of quote unquote porn that they engage in is almost all verbal. It's all emotional. Have you ever read 50 shades of gray? No. All right. If I, if I remember correctly, 50 shades of gray sold almost as well as the Bible it. And I mean that literally it, it sold so many copies. It's crazy. And for a brief moment of time, like every woman's guilty pleasure was reading 50 shades of gray. Now I read some of that and I was like, God damn, like I was blushing. I was like, what? It was crazy, but it was all about like power dynamics and like this really interesting sexual tension where it was mostly about the tension, right? Now, guys, pornographic stuff's way more on the nose. They want to see genitalia, right? It's like this whole thing. So anyway, reading that book, I was like, oh my God. They even talked about Japanese anime in it. And they talked about why it is like the most widespread animated art form. I can't remember the exact thing that it is, but it's something like that. And they were like, because the Japanese don't give a fuck. Like they are Mm. totally, um, it's just like, this is what boys like. So we're going to make it. This is what girls like. So we're going to make it. So a shoujo whole series will run like, 47 volumes, how many thousands of pages? And like the climax is they finally hold hands. I'm not joking. That's real. Right. So, and it's like, and it's wildly popular. So by acknowledging the truth of the human condition, 
Like they're just able to move fucking units. So my thing is at Impact Theory, we make comics for boys. We make comics for girls. We don't try to make one thing for both of them. Now, we're not going to give you a lead character who just wants to touch somebody's boob. That's not my thing. But like, I am going to acknowledge what boys are into, right? And we're going to give them that stuff within our own sort of limitations. Same thing with girls. We know what girls are into. We're going to give them things that girls are into within our own limitations. So um, that to me is just good advice for all of life. Recognize the truth of the human condition, recognize the truth of the way the world works. And shit just gets a lot easier because now there's cause and effect. It isn't like, what the fuck is going on? Do you think in the United States today, we are ignoring the realities of life? There is, oh my God, that is such a big question. And I don't want to be flippant about it. I'll say this. This country is filled with amazing extraordinary humans who I love and want to see win, regardless of age, sex, creed, nationality, come from everywhere, baby. I'm, I'm about it. And we will be in a really happy place if we try to find uh, a connection, a way to vibe with the people that we think the least alike, to try to find common ground as hard as that shit might be. But to find a way to love across whatever division, boys, girls, black, white, like to just find, find a way, that will be amazing. And to see us take steps towards that will be the most amazing thing that I could imagine. If we fail to recognize that the name of the game is to uplift each other, to bond, to connect, to find, to aggressively seek out the things that bring us closer, uh, that will end very poorly as measured by human suffering, whether that's emotional human suffering, whether that's like real fucking economic, like shit really falls apart kind of suffering. Uh, it just won't end ba- It won't end well. So um, I know that sounds Pollyanna, but we need a North star. And what I have found is that we're breaking down along the lines of what should the North star be? And to me, the North star should be elevating each other finding common ground, even if it starts razor thin, find the common ground, cut across that. And then each and every one of us think entirely about what can I do to help myself and the, you know, I I won't go cheesy and, and take it out to the world. I will just say, if you focus on all the things that you need to do to be successful and I'll define success because I don't mean money. If we can all adopt the following definition of success and then go crazy to be successful, but success is, and only this feeling good about yourself when you're by yourself, that's it. It's the only thing that matters. No money, no accolades, none of it matters. Okay. So how do we do that? Well, you do that by recognizing the truth of the way the human brain works. You are a social creature. You're a social creature that nature had to incentivize you to go be active and to face down extreme danger in order to uh, stay alive and protect your tribe. And to really boil it down, to have kids that live long enough to have kids, okay? That's what nature has programmed you to do. And it uses pleasure and pain to get you to do it. Okay. So the pain is loneliness, isolation, depression, anxiety, all of that. Pleasure is connection, joy, fulfillment, all of that. Okay. So fulfillment is the stand-in for the one thing that we should be aiming at. What is fulfillment? Fulfillment is to speak to our nature, the things that we will be rewarded and punished for subconsciously at a neurological level, meaning no external feedback needed. I will be rewarded and or punished for either doing or not doing. 
You have to work hard. You have to work hard. You are compelled by nature to work hard because that had to be incentivized to get you to go fucking forage and face down lions and shit. So working hard is, is a subconscious program running in your mind, which is why rich kids end up self-destructing because they didn't have to work hard. So you have to work hard to gain a set of skills that matter to you. Okay. Don't worry about the outside world yet. You're going to work hard to gain a set of skills that matter to you, meaning they're exciting. It's fun. So you're working hard for a set of skills that matter to you because skills equal progress. When you get better at something, progress, as Tony Robbins says, is one of the foundational pillars of human happiness. I believe that. I think everybody's experienced that. So I'm working hard to gain a set of skills so I can progress. This is something that's exciting to me. So the harder I'm working to progress, it's actually fun. And then I gain a set of skills. Why? Because it has utility. Okay. I want people to get really comfortable with this idea of skills have utility. They let you do something. So you're not gaining skills to tell your parents, look, I got a diploma. You don't read a book to check a box. You read a book to actually now be able to do something you couldn't do before to manipulate the world. In in fact, this is how everyone should manipulate the world. Close your eyes. Imagine a world better than this one. Open your eyes, get the skill set you need to make that world come true. That to me is power. So I don't mean manipulation in a bad way. I mean, actually manipulate it like you would manipulate fucking clay. You're going to shape it into something that you want it to be. So you get that set of skills. And I will say all of this should be aimed at a goal, okay? Everything is goal-oriented. Now, your goal should be two things, exciting and honorable. Exciting, we already addressed that. Honorable means that it serves you and other people. So this is something that elevates you and other people. Now, when you do that, you work really hard to gain a set of skills that allow you to serve yourself and other people in a way that matters to you and elevates other people, you will be fulfilled, meaning Other people could attack you. They could say horrible things about you on social media and those things will sting. But at the end, when you're by yourself, you're going to feel good about who you are because you're making progress. You're working really hard to elevate yourself and those around you. I'm telling you, that's the magic formula. That is life. So if you are depressed, I promise you, you need only do one thing. Go to a soup kitchen and help somebody. The second you're elevating somebody else, you're going to be like, God damn, like, I just don't feel as badly about myself. Now you really want to supercharge that? Go get a set of skills that you worked really hard to acquire that let you elevate people like that. And now go, but I have the chills. Go bust your ass to help those people. Dude, and now all of a sudden it's like, can't people can't fuck with you because you're like, I know what I'm doing. I show up every day and I am busting my ass. It matters to me. It's fun to me. I'm excited about it. Yes, it's elevating me. Yes, it's enriching me, but I'm doing it in a way that elevates other people. Let me tell you this shit right now. Now, I once stood, I'm, I got paid to be at an event, okay? So, hey, Tom's an asshole, right? He took a lot of money to go speak at an event. But I also stood for 11 and a half fucking hours without so much as breaking to pee and answered every question. Now, I made the same amount of money whether I ducked out the back or I went out and answered those questions. Now, when I was answering those questions, I wasn't like, oh my God, I'm so tired. I was like, fuck, This is the greatest honor of my life that people will stand around me for 11 and a half fucking hours and ask me questions. This is crazy. So you're telling me I worked this fucking hard, all those nights of laying with my face, mashing into the fucking carpet, not knowing what I'm going to do with my life, having to learn about belief system, brain plasticity, figuring all the shit out, not arguing about the T, realizing it doesn't matter if you're right. It's about putting the energy behind the right answer, all the shit. And now I can spare these motherfuckers some time and nature has wired me such that that feels good. God damn. 
Like now it's like, hey, people can come after me all they want. They can criticize me all they want. I'm in it for those motherfuckers, people that want to change their life and are willing to put in the work. And all I have to do is give them a bit of knowledge, harder knowledge. And now their life gets a little easier. Dude, that's the loop. That's fulfillment. Now, if we can all say that's what we're aiming for, that is success. Now, all I'm asking everybody, please, I'm fucking begging you. Just aim for success for everybody, for you, for other people. Now, that means motherfuckers got to work hard. It means you have to work hard. It means you have to have a goal that is honorable. It should excite you as much as anybody else, right? This isn't about making yourself a servant to other people. You should live a life that excites you. But the way that we're wired, you're going to need to help other people as well. Otherwise, you're in a super emotionally vulnerable place, even if nobody ever comes after you. Your own subconscious will fuck with you because you're not contributing to the group. If you're president for one day or for one year, what what are you telling everyone to do? Everyone has to follow your law. All right. Well, that's different. Now you're talking about a dictatorship, which strikes me as a very bad idea. So here, mad shout out to George Washington, who was like, I could become king of America. Really think for that could have been a thing. If he had said, yeah, 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 yeah. make me king of America, we would have just become the next monarchy. None of us, myself included, don't have a real historical like context on what an experiment this style of government was, right? We were a bunch of people that left other places and said, let's let's run an experiment and see. So anyway, he could have become king of America. He didn't. So to answer that part of the question, I wouldn't want people to just do what I say, because what if I'm wrong, right? The only thing I know about the way that I approach the world right now is not yet perfect. And so I'm constantly looking for how am I wrong? So anyway, what I would do is lead by example, because basically the presidency is a gigantic megaphone. And so I would just try to show people what it means to work really hard, to gain a set of skills that Mm -hmm. help me and elevate other people. And then just common ground, common ground, common ground. If people want to be inspired, read Nelson Mandela's long walk to freedom. Can we just pause for a minute? Homeboy went to prison for 27 years was abused by guards, forced to break rocks for no purpose. Like, I mean, just the the shit that he describes that they did to him in his book. Does he come out angry, bitter, wanting to sow division? No. Could he have? Yes. Did he have every reason on planet earth to? Yes. Did he change my life by coming out and saying, no, no, no. The only thing that would make any sense whatsoever right now is unity. And you give up your humanity. You, you give up your humanity when you rob from somebody else, when you hold them down or try to oppress them, you rob your own humanity. God damn. Like people have, have really tried to show us the way. So if I had a moment like that, I would just be like, this is what a growth mindset looks like. I'm going to admit when I'm wrong. I don't think I have all the right answers. I'm going to listen to really smart fucking people. We're going to run a lot of experiments A lot of these things are going to end up wrong, but it's what I call the physics of progress. The only way to improve is to try something and go, hey, did that work? Yes or no, right? Have a very clear goal. You try something. Did I get close to my goal? No. Try something else. I get closer? Yes. Did I get closer as fast as I'd like? No. Okay, then let's try something else. And doing that, like bringing that level of like, A, the way the human animal is wired, it's what I call the only belief that matters. If you put time and energy into getting better at something, you'll actually get better. And then if I could just introduce everybody to Kobe Bryant's brilliant concept, and I only have a year, I almost don't have enough time to tell you what I would do in my year. Uh, 
Kobe Bryant has this amazing quote that should define everybody's life, everybody's life, everybody's life. And anybody watching this, uh, if you don't know this idea, bring it into your life in a big way. And it is booze don't block dunks, meaning that you can get so good at something that people can't stop you. Think about this. People were paid millions of dollars to stop Kobe Bryant from scoring points, millions of dollars, the most elite athletes on the planet and paid millions of dollars. He once scored 81 points in a single game that I'm not misspeaking. He scored 81 points in a single game against a team paid millions of dollars to stop him. We all have that opportunity. Okay. You can't make a racehorse out of a pig, but you can make a really fast pig. So maybe none of us ever become as good as Kobe, but God damn, man, like my life is the answer to the question of what does a really fast pig look like? It was hard. It has forced me to face a lot of insecurity. It has forced me to really push myself to get better. It has forced me to fail. It has forced me to embarrass myself, but Jesus, man, it's amazing. But first you have to believe the only belief that matters, which is if you put time and attention into something, you actually will get better. You have to believe that booze don't block dunks, that even if the system is set to hold you back, you can get so good that it can't stop you. There were people that were born slaves that died wealthy. I'm not saying that shit is easy, man. I'm just saying like, we have so much power. We have so much power. And as somebody who wants to see other people succeed, tap into that power. Because if we all became fast pigs, one, there would be joy and fulfillment. And two, this world would be fucking even more awesome than it is because it's already pretty damn awesome. What's the best way to face your own insecurities? The word yet to realize that you're not good at that yet, but you actually can get good at that. That for me just solved everything. It's like, oh, I really do suck at that. And that really does hurt. And it it stings because I need to be good at that to achieve my goal, but I can get good. So now it's just a question of, will I put in the energy? What about before you even realize their insecurities? Self-awareness is everything. So if you don't have the self-awareness to um, see where you have problems, you're, you're dead in the water. And you can get good at it like anything else. It's a process, but you got to put in the work. I promised we'd talk about NFTs and I know you're, you're tweeting about it everywhere and you're really excited about your own NFT projects. I'm curious what your NFT project is going to bring to the table that most others aren't. So because your audience probably doesn't care about my anime, manga, and video game marketplace coming up, uh, I will say this, NFTs are going to change the world. So when I was your age, I wasn't aware of what was happening with the internet from an opportunity perspective. I was too focused on trying to get into film and sort of all my confusion around that. And I was just too young to have that kind of context. I didn't grow up with the internet. Um, When a moment like this comes along, it's only going to come along three or four times in your life. And so to see where it's going, the whole point of it is to project out and say, okay, three years from now, this is going to be this thing. 
And if you start skating now to where the puck is going to be, excuse me, in three years, there's just unbelievable opportunity. So my ask of people is don't take my word for it. I already told you that I'm not sure that I'm right. All I'm saying is go do the research because if you ignore this, you're going to kick yourself. If you end up coming to the conclusion, oh, I I think Tom's wrong. In three years from now, this is a joke. It was a fad. It's going to go away. Um, If you make that decision after doing research, fair enough, because maybe I really am wrong. Um, But I will just say this. I'm not wrong. Trust me on this one. It's going to change everything. Uh, I am betting just an extraordinary amount of money and time on the fact that the blockchain and now things being able to, things that previously couldn't be turned into code can now be turned into code. Um, the, the amount of creativity that's happening sort of in the like geeky part of the community right now is ultimately going to hit the mainstream. So for instance, I'll just tell anybody, no one will ever again be able to come to a Tom Bilyeu live event that that's mine, right? I might speak at somebody else's, but you'll never be able to attend one of my events without buying an NFT. So already, if you want to show up to one of my events, you're going to have to know how to do that because it just doesn't make sense because I can give you you buy a ticket now, I can reward you for that 10 years from now in a way that I wouldn't have been able to previously. And by the way, you could sell that. So you could say, well, I attended that event and now fuck, I see what Tom does to nurture his community. I've now 10X to my money just from having gone to that one event 10 years ago. I now want to sell that to somebody else. That was never possible before. And so, and that's like, but one simple example of where this is going. And yeah, I mean, it, it's just, it. People need to ask themselves only if I carry enough credibility with what I've done in my past. Okay. I've built three multi-million dollar companies in three wildly divergent areas. When I started as, as an employee and worked my way up to owner of that company, I became so valuable to the company. They fucking gave me a piece of the company, helped that become a multi-million dollar company. Okay. That was success. Number one, number two, Quest Nutrition, billion dollar company, 57,000% growth in its first three years alone. I understood social media before it was even called social media. That's exactly one of the reasons we built a billion dollar company. I go from software to nutrition and manufacturing to now media. And I've already built another multi-million dollar company in that three wildly divergent areas. All I'm saying is with that credibility, I'm asking you to do one thing, do your research. That's it. Look at crypto. I think that um, cryptocurrency, Bitcoin, probably specifically, maybe Ethereum as well. will probably, this is not financial advice. I do not know what the fuck I'm talking about when it comes to investment. I'm simply telling you what to look at. But I want to be clear. I think a massive wealth transfer is happening. I think this is a once in a hundred years moment, maybe more once in I mean, I think Michael Saylor called it a once in a thousand year or 10,000 year uh, moment where we're literally giving birth to an entirely new asset class. You need to research it. By all means, reject it. By all means, do research and then say, this is fucking stupid. I'm super open to that. But remember, what drives me? Danny, what drives me? I want to see other people win. I'm already rich as a motherfucker. So this (laughs) isn't about me. I'm saying, hey, boys and girls, this is your chance. Do some research look at it. If you think it makes sense, then address it accordingly. I just do not want people saying, nobody said anything. Nobody told me. I didn't know what was going on. People need to do research. I'm very optimistic that your generation will recognize how important ownership and investing is. What was the moment when you were like, this NFT, this is going to be a thing. This is going to be the future. Was there a moment where it clicked for you? Six years ago, a guy 
told me about what he called VATOMS, V-ATOMS. And now, of course, we will call NFTs. And he showed it to me and I looked at him and I said, Eric, that's going to change my business forever. And then I promptly forgot about it because the technology wasn't there. I should say I filed it away in my mind because it wasn't ready yet. It would have been a waste of time for me to put energy into it at that point. Then when NFTs as art started popping off, I was like, now's the time. And because I had already been primed for it, I knew what it was and immediately made a multi seven figure investment into building out platforms, plural. Um, and what we're doing to answer the actual question you answered. So you just, how do you make a better user experience? So right now the user experience for the artist is very awkward. They can't creating smart contracts is very hard. If you want to do any level of complexity, um, the sites feel old, antiquated and awkward. So it's like really hard to find what you want. Um, they're not using AI yet. So we'll be using AI, just making a better interface and then carrying this massive technological burden because I have the economies of scale where I can afford to throw millions of dollars at it and not need to monetize it from you. Um, so we're doing that. So we'll have better smart contracts, better interface. Uh, I am very good at building communities. So we'll have the most thriving community. Um, and we're doing things for artists behind the scenes that nobody else is doing. We've already lost probably hundreds of thousands of dollars just in the consulting that we've done for artists all before we're going to make a dime. Um, and by the way, we don't trap artists. So most platforms try to make it. So if you mint on their site, you have to stay on their site. My thing is, yo, I'm going to spend millions of dollars making this the greatest experience ever. I'm going to work with you, consult with you, do marketing for you, all of it for free. And then if you're not happy with me for any reason, you can leave and I won't penalize you, won't ask you for any money. You can just go whenever the hell you want. In the dead of night, you can skulk off without ever saying a word uh, because I know if I do that and hold myself accountable to outperforming everybody else in the space, I'll become the place to be. And that's just the, the only way to do business in this era of hyper-connectivity. In the era of hyper-connectivity, being a good person wins, right? Every and. Day. And that's, and you're putting that out at scale. You put that out at scale with Quest. You put that out with your content every day. So what advice would you give to someone who wants to be a better person? You have to define what better means. So the key here, everything is an echo of your goal. And I'm talking this, where people get themselves in trouble is they say they want to be a better person. You need to make that a metric. Every goal must have a what, a how much, and a buy when. So I want to be a better person. In what way? I want to serve at the, I want to serve. In fact, here's a great one. Tony Robbins. I don't think he would say that he's doing it to be a better person, but Tony Robbins has a goal of like 1 billion meals served or something like that. Um, and so now it's a metric. And I'm sure he has a by when date that he's trying to pull it off. So it's like, all right, word. If you think that that's what you mean by a better person, then cool. Now we've got a metric to it. You know, for me, it's to be a better person is I want to make sure that no one ever again makes it to the age of 15 without encountering a growth mindset, period, end of story. So right now, so I'm, I'm thinking of a new show that I call FYZ, which stands for fuck your zip code right now. In much of the developed world, your zip code is the number one predictor of your future success, more than your IQ. I'm not cool with that. So now it's like, how do I actually do that at scale? Because I've tried looking into a camera or bringing people together in a room and saying, think like this, act like this. For 2% of the world, 
it will change their life forever. And it's amazing. But 98% are like, yeah, I don't have fucking time for this because that that's just the nature of the human mind. You have to hit them emotionally. You got to bypass the logic, get to the emotion. You also quite frankly need to hit them between 11 to 15. That's another thing they talk about in a billion wicked thoughts, what's called the age of imprint. Did you know all sexual fetishes are developed between the ages of, of 11 and 15? How weird is that? But nonetheless true. Your brain goes through this really weird phase where it's like, all right, Give me something. Tell me, like, give me some context here. Fucking fascinating. So anyway, that realization shifted everything that we do as a company to focus, focusing on kids. Um, So 85% of all of our initiatives, despite what people know me for 85% of where we put our time, money, money, energy, um, energy, all of that is aimed at kids 11 to 15. Um, So that's our real bread and butter. Um, Yeah. I think I answered the question, but if I left anything off, let me know. It's so fascinating because 13 is also the age when you remember music the most and you're fondest of that music as well, which goes right to 11, 15. That's the age of imprinting, man. That's yeah. what that whole thing is all about. Yeah. So, Tom, I don't want to take up any more of your time. This has been an absolute pleasure. I'm so grateful for you. Um, where can people find you? I am easy to find. So at Tom Bilyeu everywhere, um, I am hyperactive on for like engagement stuff on Twitter and Instagram. All my long form content goes out on YouTube. And if we have any anime, manga, video game, art fans out there, pixelate.art, pixelate.art. You go to .com, you're going to find something else totally. So uh, pixelate.art. And uh, yeah, hopefully I will see you guys in one of those places. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks for having me on, man. Hope you guys enjoyed that episode with Tom Bilyeu. If you did, or you have any thoughts about the episode, let me know on Twitter at HeyDannyMiranda. And if you made it this far, it would mean the absolute world to me if you shared this with one person who you think would enjoy it as well. From the bottom of my heart, thank you for listening into this moment. It means the world to me. I'm so grateful for you and I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day.